Hey everybody, thank you very much for tuning in for this week's Bible study. I am very excited for this one. We are gonna be going through Matthew chapter 24. I've been excited for this one for weeks because we are looking at the end times. Um, the disciples asked Jesus, what are the signs of the end of the world going to be? And Jesus in Matthew 24 uh, lays them out for us. And one of the reasons why I'm so excited for this is that this past year, 2020, um, has brought more signs of the end times than we've ever seen before. And it's a, a constant discussion that a lot of people are having is, um, well, is this the signs of the end of the world? And a lot of Christians are talking about it, that we're getting closer and closer to the end of the world. And it's a common subject in movies. I mean, you see so many movies these days that uh, um, are about total destruction of the world, whether it's from a, um, geo perspective with global warming or climate change to a political perspective. Um, good grief, the political climate. I, this past year, the pandemic, um, the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter, uh, defund the police, the political climate. Um, right now, our president is in the process excuse me, our former president is in the process of being impeached for a second time, which has never happened before, and he's not even in office anymore, but um, just the amount of hate and anger that's in the world is astounding, absolutely astounding. And I've had a lot of people that have brought that subject up that aren't Christians that say, well, clearly we're headed towards the end. So this subject is one that I'm very excited about because we're gonna be looking at what does the Bible say about the end times. I am a Bible literist. I believe that God um, is all powerful and that he put this book here for us as a guide um, and that we should read it as such uh, to see what he has to say to us. I do believe that uh, when you're studying anything, you need to study first and foremost, what does the Bible say about it? And then use the Bible as a commentary on itself. So today we are gonna be jumping all throughout the Bible because that's one of the really cool things about eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times, um, is that it's unfolded over time. We learn more and more about the end times as we get closer and closer to the end times. That's one of the things that the Bible actually says of itself, is, is that as we get closer to the end, we'll know more and we'll learn more. But you have several books that on their own, when you look at them, uh, they tell you one thing, but when you put them together, uh, it unites the story as one, which is really cool. And I had really hoped to do this study as one big study. And I've been spending weeks prepping it. But last night I was doing a uh, run through with my wife on it. And at 90 minutes, we were less than halfway done. So this morning I revamped it and I've split it up into two chunks. We're gonna be going through Matthew 24, as, as we always do, we're going through the scripture and we will read every single verse of Matthew 24. But Matthew 24, the nice thing is, is that of its own, it's broken up into three chunks. So today we're going to hit on two of those three chunks. The first chunk, Jesus is talking about what the signs of the times will look like for everybody. The second chunk, he's specifically talking to the Jews and what the signs of the times will be for the Jews in particular in Jerusalem um, for Israel. Then the third chunk is for believers, for Christians, and it's basically, okay, well, what are we supposed to do with this information? 
We're gonna hit that next week. But I created, I had so much fun with this, I created this graphic and right now you can't see all of it. What I'm showing to you right now is just the structure of the things that we're gonna hit on. So we will hit on, in the book of Daniel, you have the 70 weeks of Daniel. We're gonna talk about that, not right away, but we'll hit on it today. Um, we're gonna talk about the church age, which is a period that we're living in right now. Then we're gonna talk about the Antichrist, we're gonna talk about peace treaty. We're gonna talk about the abomination of desolation. Uh, and we're gonna talk a little bit about the tribulation. We will talk about the rapture, the mark of the beast, um, and what we're supposed to do with this information next week. Those are very fun things and subjects to talk about, and I would love to talk about them now, but uh, we only have so much time, and so I want to honor that time. So we're gonna go through this timeline and we'll fill in this graphic as we, we go through it. And by the end, we'll have it uh, completely filled out um, and hopefully you enjoy it and it's uh, a fun way to, to look at it. I had some fun with it. And right now it doesn't look that way, but you'll see very quickly. So before we get into it, I want you to bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, speak through me. Honor this time. Uh, whatever we're doing, wherever we're at, Lord, I pray that you will... Um, bring our hearts towards you and open up our ears and our minds to be receptive of your word. It's so awesome, Lord, that you gave us this word um, for us to see the signs of the times that we live in. And Lord, I pray that despite this talk we're gonna have today about the, the destruction and, and how everything's going so uh, more and more progressively dark, I pray, Lord, that, that through this, we will be drawn closer to you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So why don't you open up your Bibles to Matthew 24. This is going to be a good one for taking notes. And as I've, I've said before, I really like to uh, take notes throughout my Bible. Um, so whether you're going, you, you have a notepad, some people like to leave everything pristine and, and nice and clean, and they'll have their perfect little notes off of the side, which is great. That's not me. Um, I scribble all throughout my Bible. Um, so have a pen ready. So we're gonna dig in Matthew 24. Oh, let me pull my notes up over here. Make sure I uh, stick with things. Okay, so context, where are we right now um, in the book of Matthew? So the past few weeks, we've seen Jesus talking uh, publicly in the temple courts. Um, this is in King's, King Herod's temple, beautiful temple. In fact, um, I'm gonna pull up a graphic. This is King Herod's temple. It was massive, 17 stories tall, gorgeous. And the outer courts is the spot where Jesus likely was, was teaching. It's somewhere in, the, in this area on the Temple Mount. Um, the last few weeks, we have seen Jesus laying in really, really harsh towards the religious order of the day. Um, Jesus had a lot of harsh words to say towards them because they were in Moses' seat, as we saw last week. They put themselves in that seat, but they, they put themselves as the, liter, the, the leaders of Israel. And the problem was, is that they were putting their selfish pride before the people. So as a result, people weren't growing in their relationship and understanding of God because of the religious orders that were in place. Um, it was just filling their pockets and uh, their pride and their greed. So Jesus was laying into them. So that we're, we're walking away from that. Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple. And this is the picture you need to see. So um, Matthew 24, 
Verse one, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to the buildings. Now we have Mark's take on this and Luke's take on this and both of those gospels paint a picture where they're trying to show Jesus the temple and be like, oh my gosh, isn't that amazing? As if Jesus hadn't, hadn't been there before or hadn't seen it before. But I think it's because Jesus is very frustrated at the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Herodians, and he spent the past few weeks for us, past few chapters in the Bible, but, but he spent a lot of time with harsh words against them. And so my guess is the disciples were kind of trying to cheer him up and be like, but, but Jesus, yeah, the religious order is, is kind of, you know, prideful and broken, et cetera, but, but look at this beautiful building. And Jesus says, do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And that is a prophecy that Jesus is saying, and it comes to fruition in AD 70, when the general Titus will come through and absolutely destroy Jerusalem. And to this day, it has, it, uh, the temple hasn't been rebuilt. There is on the Temple Mount, um, there is no Jewish temple that's there. You, you do have uh, the Muslim temple that's there, but you do not have a Jewish temple. There's a spot where it could be, and we're going to talk about that, but the temple still has yet to be rebuilt. Um, so when Titus, I was looking this up, and Josephus is a Jewish historian that um, uh, wrote simultaneously uh, about these things in that time. And he actually said that Titus didn't intend to destroy the temple, but uh, they don't know exactly how or why it caught fire. There is speculation that there was um, uh, an errant bow uh, or arrow that was a flaming arrow that they were using to destroy Jerusalem, that somehow fire got into the temple itself on the inside and caught fire. Now, the temple did have massive curtains, um, these massive, huge, huge, thick curtains. Um, to, and if one of those went up, um, you can understand how it would catch fire. Well, in the process of this fire encompassing the entire temple, um, all the gold, and there was a lot of gold. Everything in there was made of gold. Um, the, the altars, the, uh, the candles, the menorah, all of that stuff was solid gold. So it all melted, and the process of it melting, all of that liquid gold went and went into the cracks. And the Romans, I mean, war is expensive, and they're capitalists. They're gonna look at any situation that they can to, to you know, find some gold, and so the temple's been, it's all burned up, but we want that gold. And so they destroyed the temple, completely tore it apart brick by brick um, to get the gold out of it, which is one of the reasons why the temple was absolutely destroyed, and still to this day hasn't been, re been rebuilt. Uh, there are archeological digs where they do have, and you can see going underneath, you can see the original stones that were thrown off of the Temple Mount, which is really cool. And we are on verse three. We're moving along really quick. As Jesus was sitting on, the, sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The temple was a massive structure that King Herod had built. It took 45 years to build at least. Um, so 
all the disciples, when Jesus says not one stone will be standing on the other, um, that obviously must be a sign of the end, is for if the temple's gonna be absolutely destroyed, then the whole world's likely gonna be destroyed with it. So when is this gonna happen? This is what's called the Olivet Discourse. And the reason being is, is that he's on the Mount of Olives. Um, so let's pick it up on verse four. I'm gonna read, um, this is the first chunk. I, I, I told you that there's three chunks. This is the first chunk. Verse four uh, through 14 is addressed to everybody. Um, verse 15, all the way until um, verse 35. This is geared towards uh, the Jews, and we'll hit on both of these chunks today. So what I'm gonna do is I'm actually gonna read from verse four through 14, then I'm gonna go back and we're gonna unpack it just a little bit. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all the nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. So let's break this up. And to do this, and to have a little fun, um, let's go back to my graphic here. So we are in between right now. Um, Jesus, he's not here. He's risen. He's up in heaven. And the rapture, that hasn't happened yet. I'm standing here. Uh, the church still exists. And I'll explain what the rapture is uh, next week. This is in that period called the church age. So I'm gonna put some things in here to picture what it is that we're talking about. Okay, so first off, um, we have false messiahs. So let's plop down our false messiah. There's Jesus, plop. But now to make it clear that uh, he's a false messiah, let's change him just a little bit. So we are going to um, add some sunglasses, plop. And uh, let's make it really clear that it's a false messiah, nope. Okay, so there's our false messiah. Um, now, as far as my notes are concerned, so um, let's actually flip over to um, 1 John 4, 1 through 6. So 1 John, this isn't the gospel of John. This is flipping over to the letter, uh, 1 John. Uh, and we're going to pick it up on verse 1. So 1 John 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you will recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. We're going to talk about the Antichrist today which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. This is talking about the spirit of the Antichrist. So 
Antichrist does not mean against Christ. It more rightly means in replace of Christ. So the spirit of the Antichrist, the idea there is the spirit of putting things in place of Christ. You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. What does that mean? The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Inside every single Christian resides the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, you make your body, uh, your soul is now a residence for the Holy Spirit. That still quiet voice is the Holy Spirit working inside of you, guiding you, telling you to go this way or that way in a still small voice. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. And that's what's inside you as a believer. And that, because we have that in us, we are stronger than he who is in the world. Who's in the world? Well, the Bible makes it very, very clear. Who is the God of this world? Little g. Satan. Satan holds the title deed to earth right now. Satan has free reign over earth. Why? Well, we've talked about that before. This is where you get into uh, free will and choice. We need to be given a choice and be, have an opposition to be able to choose good. You need to see and be able to be enticed by evil to have a choice. And that's why Satan, for a time, uh, is allowed his reign. But the Bible talks about the fact that he knows his time is drawing short and therefore he's doing a lot of work right now. And that's what's existing right now. And so what John is saying here is that he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. Now that's one thing I'm gonna talk about right now is the world listens to them. This is the Antichrist. This is the false messiahs. The world listens to them because they speak from the viewpoint of the world. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we will recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now I'm back at Matthew, but the important thing that I want you to, to take away from that is that um, idols, false, uh, uh, false messiahs, not idols, sorry, that's coming up later, idol worship um, with the abomination of desolation. Sorry, um, false messiahs. Now, it's rare that we see someone who comes up and says, I am the Messiah. And if someone were to say that, we would obviously see them for what they are and be like, okay, dude. Um, and we probably call um, and get them some medical attention. But do we have today false messiahs? Yes, absolutely. Things that we worship and follow in place of Christ. Now that, that verse specifically in 1 John talked about the fact that they will be things of the world and the world will follow them. So let's talk about that. What is the platform upon which we follow other individuals? Social media, Instagram, Twitter. It's insane. Twitter is amazing to me. I, I'm not on it and I will not uh, because I don't wanna go down that rabbit hole. But Twitter used to be just little tiny s snippets of information, which it still is, but it's, it's expanded beyond that. But you give a person of influence, an influencer says something, and all of a sudden that bit of information is followed by millions and millions of people, and it's shared. And this is how we get information. Um, I would argue that we have 
so many false messiahs in these people that we put up on pedestals. Just for fun, I wanted to see who the most uh, followed people are on Instagram and Twitter. So the one person that I found in this whole mess on both Instagram and Twitter that I was like, oh, that's not that bad. The very number one person that has the most followers on Twitter is Barack Obama. Of all the people that I'm gonna mention, he is the one person that is, is in a seat of leadership. And while I might not necessarily agree with his political party, um, he's a great speaker. And I, I do think I understand why people would follow him and listen to him. I'll give you that one. I like that one, in fact. Um, right underneath him is another individual who has... Uh, so 129 million people follow Barack Obama. At 114 million, number two, Justin Bieber. Number three, Katy Perry. Number four, Rihanna. Number six, Taylor Swift. And tied with number six of Taylor Swift with 88 million was Donald Trump at 66 million. 88 million, excuse me, but he's gone. He's gone, which is asked, that's a whole other separate question. Whether you agreed with him or not, his voice has been silenced on that platform, both Twitter um, and Instagram. He's gone, poof. Now, what's the constitutional element of that? And how is that an indicator of we are getting towards an, like we are going more and more down this path where now censorship, the information that we are given is being censored. Whether it's good or bad, I think someone should have censored President Trump's Twitter feed on day one of his presidency. I think it would have had a lot better results if he was not allowed to, to use this. Um, but continuing on, Lady Gaga, uh, Ariana Grande, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, Kim Kardashian is number 11 on Twitter with 69 million. Uh, she's number five on Instagram with 203 million. Um, an interesting one that was found on both Instagram and Twitter is uh, Cristiano Ronaldo is a Portuguese soccer player. This dude has the most followers on Instagram. 259 million people follow him. He's a Portuguese soccer player. He is a gorgeous soccer player. And a lot of the photos that he has, uh, I can understand why so many people follow him, especially the ladies. Um, and he's number five on uh, being followed on Twitter. So I also, just for fun, I wanted to look up. Um, so uh, Kylie Jenner is number four with 213 million and Kim Kardashian is number five with 203 million on um, Instagram. And I looked up to see, well, what do they actually do? Um, because I understand that you have the Portuguese soccer player, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, uh, is number three with 215 million. He was a, a former WWF, for those people who are old enough to know what that is, that's the WWE now, that, and now he's uh, an actor. But these, Kim Kardashian and Jenner, it's like, okay, they're famous because they're famous, and because they're famous, people listen to them, and now they make money because people listen to them for the things that they say and the things that they do, and people wanna watch the things that they do. Uh, if that's not a testament to us leading towards the end times, I don't know what is, um, but that's our false messiahs. So getting back to our graphic, okay, so we already have our false messiahs. We have our Jesus wearing um, his uh, sunglasses in recognition of being a false messiah. Okay, next we, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So we have our graphic up. So let's plop a tank down, boom. 
There's our tank. That is our wars and rumors of wars, and now our false messiah is driving this tank. So uh, let's talk about war for a second. I want to show you two different um, graphs that I pulled up. This first one is state-based conflict since 1946. So the yellow and the red are actual civil conflicts. The red are civil conflicts in which foreign entities uh, got involved. So most of the war that's existed since 46 was civil war or civil conflicts in which foreign entities got involved. Uh, the U.S. has gotten into quite a few conflicts that are this exact description in which Russia backs one side, the United States backs another, whether or not either side really admits that that's what we're doing. And as a result, this small little battle on small little chunk of land becomes massive because of it. But the, the, the next one that I want you to see, this is global deaths and conflicts since 1400. So what you're looking at here is a timeline from 1400 to 2000. And the pink spheres that you see, those are actual conflicts in and of themselves, which have both uh, military as well as civil. Uh, and then the red line you see are the military um, deaths. And we have been at war since creation um, with Cain and Abel. Um, I mean, we have been at battle. But the thing is, is that we've gotten callous to it. Um, you hear of uh, coups, military coups, you hear of all kinds of stuff, and it's just kind of like, okay, yeah, you have uh, North Korea, and he, oh, he's got a new missile. Whoop-de-doo, is he going to do anything with it? I don't know. I mean, in the news, it's like we're so calloused to this wars and rumors of wars to the point where the news really doesn't share all that much information because nobody really cares. They'd rather watch the Kardashians than worry about some new conflict because it's so uh, commonplace. Number three on our list, we have um, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, the idea there is, yes, you have further war and conflict. So uh, to our graphic, we're going to add a mushroom cloud um, behind our tank and behind our false messiah. Um, but this is actually talking about, uh, in digging into the original language, you can actually get uh, ethnos, which there's two different elements that you can look at there. One is from a religious standpoint, is, is that you can take this to interpret to be that there will be religious conflict. And there's two types of religious conflict I want to talk about. The first one is conflict between religions. And no stronger conflict exists than that of between Muslims and Jews. At the, the, the pinnacle of that is the contested, occupied territories of Israel. Um, Iran has said without equivocation they want to uh, annihilate the Jews and absolutely kick them off the map. Uh, Israel is considered the dagger that divides the Arab world. Talk about conflict there. And for our graphic, we are going to add a coexist bumper sticker to our tank. This is talking about the, the different religious perspectives and how there's so much conflict within that. But there's also an element of spiritual warfare that is going on. Um, that this can be alluding to. And there is spiritual battles that, that are happening, whether that is um, manifested by mankind or actual spiritual warfare. The Bible does talk about the fact that there are angels and demons and that they do battle it out. And uh, a really fun read that is fictional, but it's based on the Bible, is by Frank Peretti, and it's called This Present Darkness. And I'll include the link to that, as well as all, everything I'm talking about. All of this information is going to be in the links in the YouTube feed in the, the notes down below.
So Frank Peretti, what he does, he paints a really cool picture where he takes a small town uh, and he shows it from the perspective of the people and what they see, but then he also talks about the characters of the angels and demons that are battling, and, and you see their world and their, their character and what they're doing and, and how it interacts in an element that we as humans cannot see but does take place. It's very interesting stuff. So that's this, this next one that's on here is this um, uh, rising of um, uh, nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Let me make sure I got all my notes right on that. Spiritual battle, religious wars. Oh, racial tension. That's another element of the ethnos is the idea of people groups battling against each other. Oh my gosh, when you thought that things were bad in the midst of the pandemic with COVID, you have uh, the, the death of George Floyd. And the aftermath of that has created an amazing amount of tension, uh, racial tensions in the United States. Black Lives Matter as an organization became on the forefront of the news. Um, so you, you can't argue that racial tensions aren't high right now. That is for certain. Okay, number four is famines. Um, so yeah, there will be famines. Number five is earthquakes, but let's stop on famines. In Luke, so we see in both Mark and Luke, um, Jesus' account is given of this. Luke adds pestilence to this list. What's pestilence? COVID is pestilence. It's sickness, it's disease. I mean, it is getting worse and worse and worse. Pandemics are a, a reality now. And now, yes, we do have the vaccine, um, but you have all of these adaptations of the virus. And I would argue it's going to get worse. This pandemic was not a bad one, okay? And now I say that, and I know that hundreds of thousands of people have died. We're over 440,000, I think, right now. Um, from this in the US, um, but think about if it was something as bad as like Ebola, um, where it, it, it decimates populations. Yes, uh, people have died from this, but it's a very, 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 very small percentage. Um, and I do honestly believe based on scripture that it's gonna get worse. Now famines, let's talk about famines because these, these two things are kind of elemented uh, uh, together. Famines, I didn't know this. These stats that I looked up, they are sobering stats. And what I found, uh, I found two articles. The first one was written, um, and it's on the UN's website, United Nations, the UN.org. UN.org is the, the website. Um, Hunger and undernutrition are the greatest threats to public health, killing more people than HIV, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. Each day, 25,000 people, including more than 10,000 children, die from hunger and related causes. You say that again, 25,000 people a day die from hunger-related issues. This was before the pandemic hit. Just for reference, uh, just over 2,600 people, 2,600 people died because of the Twin Towers, um, because the towers fell and, and surrounding them in New York City, 2,600 plus, versus uh, 25,000 people die every single day because of starvation. In the US, we don't see it. We don't see it. We don't see that. 
But throughout the globe, there are famines. There's no question of that. This is an article that was written in the midst of the pandemic. It's a little bit more recent. I found this on NPR. It's an article by H.J. Maya. Maya? M-A-I is the last name. Both these articles, the links are again in the notes section. The UN's humanitarian chief has warned that without global cooperation and financial assistance, the number of people dying from hunger or hunger-related diseases could double this year due to the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic. The effect of that is going to be for the first time in probably 30 years, a big increase in the number of people in extreme poverty, people living on less than $2 a day said Mark Lowcock, UN Undersecretary uh, General of Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator. And as part of that, Lowcock said, he expect, unfortunately, that there could be a doubling this year in the number of people we are literally who are literally starving to death and won't survive unless they get help. There's famine throughout the world, and it's getting worse, especially right now with the pandemic uh, and everything that's going on. Number five uh, is earthquakes in diverse places. So for our graphic, oh, we didn't add our graphics for famine and pestilence. Okay, so for famine, let's add a sick cow. That uh, is a beautiful thing. Now let's add in, let's give our false messiah a mask. That's a fun one uh, to add in for our pestilence. And now for earthquakes, there's an earthquake underneath our tank. The National Earthquake Information Center, NEIC, records an average of 20,000 earthquakes every year, about 50 a day around the world. There are, however, millions of earthquakes estimated to occur every year that are uh, too weak to be recorded. Each year, Southern California in particular has about 10,000 earthquakes, uh, the majority of which go unnoticed. Uh, growing up in the Northwest, uh, I remember doing earthquake drills um, because they've been talking about the Northwest, the big one, that Seattle is supposed to get hit. So is Portland. The Pacific Northwest is supposed to get hit with a massive earthquake. The tectonic plates uh, are charged and ready to uh, let go. And perhaps that earthquake is going to happen in the tribulation, that, that they are the... the Geologists are accurate in, in what they're seeing. And they're also in Northern California are also talking about the big one that's supposed to hit. Now, I didn't grow up in the East Coast, so I don't know if, if you grew up on the East Coast doing earthquake drills, but it was a very common practice that we did in anticipation of the big one that's coming. Okay, next after earthquakes is persecution. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And one of the things that I want to note, this is speaking to both the Jews as well as the Christians. This is Jesus talking to everybody that will be hated because of him, because of God. You cannot make the argument that Jews are not a persecuted uh, race and a persecuted religion. Um, the Jewish people, I would argue, no other people group in the world, in the world's history, have been persecuted to the extent that the Jews have. You could make the argument that the slave trade in the United States was bad. 
Don't get me wrong, but no, no one has come out, no world leader has come out and, and been advocating for the total annihilation of the entire people group. And yet there have been time over time since uh, this period that we're in right now to today, there has been so many times, there have been so many times in history where world leaders, Hitler being one of them, um, tried to completely annihilate the Jews off the map. You can look at uh, the 10 ways of persecution that happened um, shortly after this um, in, in ancient times um, with Roman emperors that, like Nero, for example, that killed millions of Jews. I mean, it's, it's absolutely insane, the millions of Jews that have died because of persecution. Now, today, Christians also do face massive amounts of persecution. We are so lucky in the United States. We don't feel that. I have never felt persecution as a Christian. Now, some people might say that, oh, well, you know, I, I told somebody that I go to church and they laughed at me. I'm, I'm being persecuted for my faith. That's not, I mean, you could argue that that's persecution. The social ridicule that you may or may not experience um, because of your faith, that could be an element of persecution. But that's nothing like the persecution that exists where people literally are putting their lives on their line to proclaim Christ throughout the world right now, today. So I did some research and found that the Center for Study of Global Christianity has some uh, amazing stats on this, which this, is, this, this organization is, is put together by Gordon Conwell. They estimate that there have been over 70 million Christians martyred in history uh, over half of these were in the 20th century under fascist and communist regimes. In the early 21st century, we estimate that an average over 10-year period from 2000 to 2010, over a million Christians were killed at a, a, an average of 100,000 uh, per year that are killed for their faith. Again, we don't experience that in the U.S. today. Uh, I do feel, and, and the Bible does talk about, how the persecution is going to get worse. We are lucky in the United States, although I would argue this, if it doesn't cost you anything to stand on your faith, it's not a tested faith, and so it's not as valued, versus if it would cost you your life to proclaim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it'll put a value on that faith. And it is something that we don't have here, and I am grateful for that. I am grateful that, that we aren't persecuted, but I do, because of these verses, I do think it is going to get worse. But make no mistake, we are very lucky in the United States, and God is protecting us. God has uh, put a hedge of protection around us. I don't know how long that's going to last. And the persecution that is felt throughout the world, there's no question. People are dying for their faith in Jesus Christ all over the globe today. Okay, our next one. Um, at that time, many will turn away from faith and will betray and hate each other. Okay, so let's return to our graphic. Oh, I didn't, uh, I didn't put up persecution. Okay, there's our graphic for persecution. And I apologize, and I know that's a harsh one, but that's one symbol of persecution. Um, many will turn away from the faith betraying each other and hating each other. So for that one, our graphic is going to be um, 
two guys up in the mushroom cloud fighting. There is so much anger and hate and, and, and fighting uh, that exists uh, amongst people. No longer can you have an opinion that is different from somebody else and be able to sit down and have a conversation, open dialogue, discussion. Uh, there's so much anger and hatred just on a political scale from one group to another um, that violence is incited because you are of this group or of this group. I hate you because of that group. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Number eight is false prophets. Uh, on verse 11, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Okay, so we already have our false messiah. What's the difference of a false prophet? Okay, a false messiah says, follow me. I know the answers. I am the Christ. I am the way. You should follow me. That's a false messiah. A false prophet is a person that um, looks good. It, it, the Bible describes them as a, a wolf in sheep's clothing that on the outside appear um, good and innocent and everything's great, but on the inside, the, the uh, message that is being delivered is not uh, delivering on what they're being sold. So uh, a scripture verse that I want to pull up here is Matthew 7, 15 through 20. We were in Matthew 7, I don't know, weeks ago. But Matthew 7, 15 through 20, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree that bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So going back to our graphic, let's add some fruit to our false Messiah. We're going to keep the same individual there. I'm not going to add in false prophets, but we're going to add some fruit and we're going to put a big uh, no symbol to show that the fruit is bad. Uh, that, that comes from that. Well, here's a question. What, Dave, what are examples of false prophets? I don't know of any false prophets. Oh, I'm sure you do, actually. Um, I would argue that the TV and of evangelists uh, and that whole movement, um, it's also called the Word of Faith, the Prosperity Now, prosperity, prosperity Theology, Health and Wealth Gospel, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. Um, an amazing movie that I suggest everyone watches to realize that the fact that what these guys are preaching is a false gospel and they are false prophets. The movie that I would suggest is called American Gospel, Christ Alone. It's on Amazon Prime. I think it's like $3 to rent. It's well worth the, the, the rental. Uh, I think you can also, there are some other places that you can find it. I'll include the link uh, below, but there's also another good reference is gotquestions.org. It's an amazing website that um, you can ask any questions you want. And it, it is a group of evangelical Christians, a council um, of educated people that answer the questions. So you can submit your own question, but then you can also go and just read the answers that they've given. And then a committee uh, uh, assesses the responses and then decides if that is biblically based, based on a literal Bible translation from an evangelical Christian perspective. So uh, a link that I'll put in there is if you do a search for word of faith, 
the word of faith movement, the reason why it is a false gospel uh, is because the idea that God wants you to be happy and that if you would just pray for happiness and if you would believe in your heart that you can be happy or financially wealthy, if you want the Lamborghini, all you got to do, friend, is pray for that Lamborghini and believe in your heart. And if you give $1,000 right now, God's going to love you even more and he's going to believe you more and you're going to get that Lamborghini. I don't know why I went to a Southern accent there, but it kind of fits. But these televangelists are making millions and millions of dollars off of getting people to give to them. And when, they, when you give, the more you do with your wallet, the more God's gonna bless you. And it, that is not biblical. That is making that person rich and they're not actually teaching the Bible. Acts 17.11, that's something you should memorize. Acts 17.11, treat it, the term I hear is Acts 17.11 it. What that means is that you are, in Acts 17.11, the Apostle Paul is talking about the Berean church. And what he's talking about in that is Paul's going around and he's teaching. He's going into these synagogues and he's teaching Jews about the Messiah. And so what the Berean church did is they would go every day and search the scriptures to make sure what the apostle was saying was true. And that is what you should do and I should do. Any message you hear, including this one from me, you should open up your Bible, look at the references I give, read it, and make sure that what I am saying and what you are buying into is truth. There are churches that I am sad to say are not leading people to a closer relationship with God. They're preaching these sermonettes, these feel-good six-part series on tithing or a six-part series on the new and better you that might make you feel good, but is it drawing you closer in a relationship with God? The Bible talks about this, and we've talked about it before, that some who you think should be saved won't be in heaven and others who you don't expect to be saved will be there broad is the path that leads to destruction but narrow is the path that leads to salvation when we get to heaven there are going to be people who expect to get into heaven and jesus is going to look at them and say depart from me i didn't know you and they'll be like but wait i did this thing i gave all this money to that one televangelist or i gave all this money to this one thing i went to church every day for 20 years and jesus will say yeah, you went to the building, but did you actually get to know me? Did you actually study my word? Did you actually want to have a relationship with me? I'm sorry, but I don't know you. It's a scary and sobering fact. And surrounding the Christian church today are false prophets. So be careful. Acts 17, 11 it. Study and make sure that the, the pastor that you're listening to is biblically based and is bringing you into a closer relationship with God. And if you do fear that the church that you are going to is not leading you down the right path, find one that believes in the word of God and it's inerrancy and preaches from the Bible and draws you closer to God. Okay, we got to keep going. Got to keep going. Okay, so the next one is uh, an increase in wickedness. Um, this is uh, the end of verse 11. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the, uh, this, original, um, 
uh, word here in the Greek could also imply lawlessness. The fact that there are political people who are in uh, elected official positions that represent you and I as our elected officials are vying for defunding the police, if that isn't an indicator of us going towards the end times, I don't know what is. That's lawlessness. It is insane to me, the fact that there are people in our political uh, system that, are, that one of their agendas is to remove funding from the police department. I, I looked it up and found that uh, New York City is one of the police departments that has had a massive number of people that have retired, that have left the force, and understandably so. If first of all, you got a really, really hard job. Second of all, you're underappreciated. Now, every single thing you do is recorded. You have to have your own uh, uh, camera on yourself to record every single thing you do. And then anytime you go and do anything in interaction with anybody, even if you're trying to protect somebody, everyone's gonna have their phones out watching. And who knows what might come from that? You might, <laughs> have a horrible situation where you're just trying to help someone, but because you are helping someone and because of the tension that exists right now, your family could be put at risk. It's no wonder that, that there's cops that are leaving the force because first of all, they're underappreciated, they're doing a very hard job, and now they're gonna be paid less and the people who they're trying to serve aren't appreciative of what, the, this is just asinine. It is absolutely asinine to me. The whole idea of defunding the police is stupid. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that is my opinion, but that is a very good example of this increase of wickedness and lawlessness and the fact that this is an agenda that a lot of people have speaks to what Jesus is talking about uh, of the days that we live in right now. I hope you're getting that picture about the fact that the days we're living in right now are what Jesus is describing. For our graphic, Let's add a nice skull, an angry skull up there for wickedness and lawlessness. Now, Jesus wraps up this little section with a high note. We've been going down, 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 negative, negative, negative. Um, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. So for our final graphic for our church age, let's add a Bible up there. So there's an interesting question that comes up. Jesus will talk about the fact that no one knows the day or the hour when he's gonna return, except for God. God's the only one who knows that. We don't know that. And anybody who actually comes right out and says that Jesus is coming back on this day, immediately, as soon as they say, it's on February 12th or whatever it might be. As soon as somebody says that, you know they're wrong and you know you shouldn't listen to them because Jesus, who does know these things, says that no one knows the day or the hour. But one of the things that we do have from scripture that is said is, is what's called the fullness of the Gentiles. If you catch it, Jesus just said it right here. It's the very last thing that, that he mentions, um, that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. There's two different perspectives on this. Um, a testimony to all the nations. So on one perspective is, is as soon as the gospel message has been preached to everyone in the world, everyone's had the opportunity to have that choice, then the rapture's gonna happen. 
Christ's second coming is going to happen, which those things don't, those are two different things. But, and the other perspective is, well, I've spoken about this before, but you have what's called the book of life. The book of life is every name of every individual, past, present, and future, that has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as their savior, has their name written into the book of life. And they, if their name is in the book of life, do not have to go through the great white throne judgment. Now, this brings up this question about um, predestination and choice and whether or not uh, I had a choice in accepting Christ. And I'm not gonna go down that path, but the simple answer to this is, is that you absolutely have a choice. It's just that God sees the entire beginning from the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He sees the whole big picture. And so because of that, he knows who is and who is not going to make that choice. But it's still a choice that every single person on earth has to make. And you have to choose. And not choosing Christ doesn't mean that you're not making a choice. You're making your choice by not making that choice. Does that make sense? So there's this term, the fullness of the Gentiles, which that implies one of these two things before Jesus is going to come back. Well, you want to know something that's very interesting that I discovered. There is an organization that is called uh, the Wyclef Organization, the Wyclef Bible Translators, wyclef.org is the group. And this group has been around for a long time, and their goal is to get the Bible translated into every single language that is spoken across the world. Now, some people might say, wow, that hasn't happened yet. But the reality is there's lots of small little tribes in which their language isn't written. It's only spoken. So how do you translate a spoken language into a, a, a written Bible? You have to give it an alphabet. I mean, that's complicated. That is hard stuff. And so that's why it's taking so long. And that specifically is what Wyclef is doing. I would highly suggest going to the website and, and make a donation, help these guys out, because what they're doing is they are creating vocabulary, alphabets. They are creating this for these people groups that don't have a written language, but because of them, they're creating written languages, which is really, really cool, but it's tedious work. So they set a goal in 1999, by the end of 2025, to have every single spoken language have a Bible. An updated timeline is somewhere in between 2025 and 2038. Between 2025 and 2038, in that range, that's less than 17 years, there's gonna be a Bible in every single language, in every single village in the world. That's the one thing that Jesus says must happen before the rapture of the church. Now, and that's the next thing on the prophetic timeline. Could the rapture happen right now? Poof, yes, absolutely it could. There's an element of eminence. Gotta stop that, because I'm gonna go down and explain what the rapture is, and I can't, I can't, so we gotta keep going. Um, we're going to take a pause right here before we go on to verse 15, because verse 15 uh, through verse 35 is talking about the Jews. So what I want to do just real quick is take um, a little bit of a pause, um, and I want to talk about the fact um, of why the Jews are 
the barometer and the timeline and the clock that we need to look at when it comes to eschatology. In studying the end times, we should watch Israel. And the reason for that is uh, a couple of different things, but we're gonna go through Daniel 9. This is the 70 weeks of Daniel uh, prophecy that Daniel makes. But before I go through that, I want to explain something just real quick. Um, the Jews are God's chosen people. For those that are new to, to Christianity uh, or new to studying the Bible, the whole Old Testament is all about God's love for his people, the Jews. They are his chosen people. Make no mistake about that. And there are two covenants that God has made with the Jews. There's more than that, but there's two that I want to talk about right now. The first one is the Abrahamic covenant. This is found in Genesis. Uh, specifically, uh, it's Genesis 12 through 22. That chunk uh, lays out what the Abraham covenant is, but it is a covenant between God and Abraham that spells out for the Jews a couple different things. One, that there is chosen people, that God will bless them and make them a prosperous nation, that um, those who bless the Jews will be blessed and those who curse the Jews will be cursed, and it outlines the promised land, which still to this day, the Jews have not fully occupied that entire area. It's very contested land, Palestine, their occupiers. Um, but the, the, the full breadth and the scope of the land that God promised to the Jews hasn't been realized yet. It will be in the millennial kingdom. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But that is an everlasting, unconditional covenant, meaning it's still standing to this day right now. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who cursed Israel will be cursed. The Jews are still to this day God's chosen people. The second covenant that I want to cover this is the Mosaic Covenant, and that is found in Deuteronomy 11 and Exodus 20 are the two chunks where you can see that. This is where you get the Ten Commandments. This is where you get uh, the, the Levitical law. This is very much a um, if this, then that. It is a conditional covenant, an agreement that God makes with the Jews, and the Jews actually agree to it. They say, yes, we will do all of these things. They didn't, okay? It is a conditional covenant where God says, if you do these things, if you follow me and follow my teachings, I will bless you. But if you go from me, if you depart from me, I will bring down wrath on you. I will cause you, uh, uh, bad things will happen to you and you'll be dispersed throughout the world. This was a threat that God made over and over again. And the prophets the prophets, the, the, the books of the prophets, we see the story of this over and over and over again. The prophets speaking to Israel, the prophets were put in place by God to be God's uh, uh, leader of the Jews. And you see over and over again, the prophets say to the Jews, you gotta follow God, you gotta repent, and we gotta go back to following God. Otherwise, bad things are gonna happen. Jeremiah said it, if we don't repent, we're gonna be overthrown by Babylon. And he said this over and over again when Babylon wasn't even a world leader at the time, and then, lo and behold, it happened because the Jews did not repent. There's a couple passages that I want to um, hit. Um, Actually, just a few weeks ago, Matthew 21, Jesus specifically talked about this in two parables. Do you remember this? We had the parable of the wedding banquet and we had the parable of the vineyard. That's also called the parable of the tenants. If you recall, 
Jesus paints a picture of a landowner who builds a vineyard, that's God, he builds a vineyard, that's earth, and he puts in charge of it some tenants, that's the Jews. Then the owner of the vineyard sends his servants, those are the prophets, sends his servants, the prophets, to get the fruit off of the land from the tenants. The idea being is, is the sacrificial system and that the Jews, the tenants of the farm, are supposed to be following God. They kill the servants. So then God sends more servants, that's the prophets, and they kill them. And then God sends his son, that's Jesus, and then they kill him. And Jesus actually says in Matthew 21, 43, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. And Jesus said right here, we just saw it uh, at the very beginning of 24, Jesus says that the temple will be destroyed and not one single stone will stand on itself. He is prophesying what happened in AD 70 when Titus did sack Jerusalem. This was part of what's called the diaspora. This is the, the scattering of the Jews. And if you were to look at 1500, if you were to go back to 1500 AD, the, the Hebrew language wasn't spoken. The Jews were scattered everywhere. There were more Jews living in New York than were living in the Middle East. In fact, there are more Jews in New York City, living in New York City, than living in the Holy Lands up until like the 70s or 80s because they were scattered all over the world, all over the globe. Even in fact, in, in, when we look at the letters, the early apostles days, the Jews are scattered all over that, all over the place. And we see this at the opening of the letter that James does in James 1.1 and 1 Peter 1.1. Both of those letters are addressed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. God did say that if you don't follow me, you will be scattered. But throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, God alludes to that first promise, the Abrahamic covenant of where he is going to bless the people of Israel. I did a search to find how many verses talk about a regathering of the Jews. I was overwhelmed by the number of Bible passages that there are specifically talking about the Jews being regathered in Jerusalem. And here's some that I want to share. I'm just going to go through these real quick. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you back the land of Israel again. Jeremiah 32, 37. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. Isaiah 11, 11. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Alam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judea from the four quarters of the earth. Some people argue that these passages 
which all but one of them are from the prophets of the prophets saying this of, of this prophecy of saying that God will regather are saying that, well, no, 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 that's actually talking about the regathering of the Jews after their captivity in Babylon, or that's the regathering after this or the regathering after that. The reason why I picked these verses in particular to read is because they all allude to global scale, from the four corners of the globe, from all nations. It's not just from Babylon to return to, to Israel. It's an element of they will be returned from all over the globe. The Jews are, are the easiest and one of the strongest arguments in a defense for the existence of God because no other people group on the globe has gone through what they've gone through and come back as a people group. People groups have been scattered. Yes, that has happened. And their languages have been extinct. Yes, that has happened. But it has never come back. Hebrew was an unspoken extinct language. And the Jews, Judaism as a religion, was more of a culture in small, little, tiny groups but it has regathered to Israel. This is what's called um, the Zionist movement or the regathering. And it started um, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. It became prominent in the 1800s. And there's two individuals that I wanna hit on, Theodore Herzl and Eliezer Ben Yehuda. These are two individuals. So uh, Theodore Herzl um, was a journalist in the late 1800s. And in 1896, he published um, a pamphlet called The Jewish State, and he founded uh, the Zionist movement. And his goal, his perspective, was that in order for the Jews, Israel, to not completely lose their culture and their faith, they need to go back to the Holy Lands and they need to regather together. Uh, and so he started that, that movement of that, that regathering, the Zionist movement. Eliezer Ben Yehuda was born in 1858. And he is one of the individuals that is credited uh, strongly with bringing back the Hebrew language. He followed Herzl and, and lived in Israel, was one of the Jews that went back to the promised land. Many, many Jews that went back before it was given to them in 1948, many, many people, Jews went back and repurchased, bought with their own money, the land in Israel that they have now to this day. But an important thing here with uh, Ben Yehuda, one of the things that he did is that he said to his children, we will speak only Hebrew from now on. And his children are actually credited with being the first native speaking Hebrew Jews in Israel for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years because of that. And, and in his group, he, re, he brought Hebrew as an extinct language to be spoke. And now, if you go to Jerusalem today, they're speaking Hebrew. Everywhere you go, they're speaking Hebrew. The Jews have regathered in Israel today. And we're gonna talk about that in a little bit when we talk about um, what's called the blossoming of the fig tree. And I'll get to that, I'll get to that. Um, hopefully today, we'll see. Hang in there. I, I hope that you guys are still active in this stuff. I did a lot of digging into this and I, I can't skip over stuff. But now we are going to look at the 70 weeks of Daniel. So keep, uh, put your marker here in Matthew 24 and flip over um, to Daniel chapter nine. I've gone over this briefly before and I'm not gonna spend too much time on this, but we're gonna talk about um, the 77s or heptad. Heptad um, is the original word here, which the idea is a period of seven, so 77s. So we equate it to weeks because a week is a period of seven days. Um, 
But this is written by the prophet Daniel. This is in a time where um, the, the Jews are in captivity in Babylon, um, and Daniel is among them in captivity. So we're picking up on uh, Daniel 9, 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So let's explain all that real quick. Seventy sevens, so that's 77 year periods, which equates to 490 years. Okay, so that's 490 years are decreed for your people, that's Israel, and your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Has that happened yet? No. Those things have not happened yet. You could make the argument for the atonement of sin has happened in Jesus. If you accept it, then it has been, the atonement for sin has been made. But the Jews don't recognize that. And so for the Jews, you could make the argument that it hasn't happened yet. Verse 25. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one the ruler comes, there will be 70, excuse me, there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay, so what's that? Um, seven plus 62 multiplied by seven, you get 445. Okay, so 445 years happens in between what? What are the two things that Daniel is prophesying here? And this is one of the reasons why um, skeptics have huge issue with Daniel and say it's a forgeries because he's so specific about what's gonna happen. Okay, well, so, excuse me, 483, I did the math wrong. Um, seven plus 62 gets you 69, 69 times seven gets you 483. So 483 years go in between two things. Two things occur in 483 years. The first thing that starts this clock ticking, tick, 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 is when the order goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, well, we know when that happened. We know that in 445 BC, King Artaxerxes will give the order, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We get that from Nehemiah chapter two. He gives the order. And you could even go down to the day. I don't know what it is, but you could go down to that level of when, historically speaking, that order was given. Then you go forward 483 years from 445 BC, so you're actually counting down, and you go past zero, and you end up at 30 AD, in which Daniel says, the anointed one comes. I will read, no, excuse me, uh, the anointed one, the ruler comes. There'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. That's 483, which puts you at 30 AD. An important side note here, this is the Jewish calendar. It's the lunar calendar. It's not the 365.4 uh, days per year with the leap year. So the, the math is slightly different. It'll be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After 62 sevens, the anointed one, 
will be put to death and will have nothing. It's talking about Jesus. If you recall in Matthew 21, do you remember that Jesus said to Jerusalem, Oh, Israel, if you had only known on this thy day, it was prophesied when the Messiah would come back, and they should have known that Jesus was coming back, but they missed it. So this is an amazing prophecy that brings us to the point of Jesus. But then there's a stop in the clock because the clock for the 77s or the 490 years is decreed on Israel, on the Jews. Right now, there is a pause. The clock has stopped. It's paused. This is a period that's known as the church age. It is in between when Christ was crucified and Pentecost and the start of the church. You could argue that the church started somewhere in there. Pentecost is the most is the easiest one to defend because that's when the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples and the church was started. Well, when is the church age going to end? And when is the final seven days, excuse me, seven weeks, the heptad, the seven years, going to start back up? He's going to tell us. One will be put, oh, excuse me, I don't know what to put to death. The people of the ruler, another way to say that is the ruler of the people, the ruler that the people love is the idea, who will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Okay, Dave, what's going on here? Okay, so the he that is mentioned here is the Antichrist. Bum, 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 the Antichrist, also known as the Beast. Aww. I'm going to call him Nikolai. And the reason why I'm going to call him Nikolai is because uh, a fun fictional book that uh, if you want to read more on these things, which is kind of fun, is uh, Left Behind. It's a whole big book series. Um by LaHaye and Jenkins that uh, is a fictional take, a biblically-based fictional perspective of what it would look like um, if all of a sudden all the Christians disappeared. Ah, now I'm talking about the rapture. I gotta wait. I gotta wait. Oh, I meant to talk when we were talking about uh, persecution. Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a sobering read on persecution. And while we're going through our books, this is a great read. This is uh, a book that I used a lot for this talk today. It's called In the End Times in Chronological, The End Times in Chronological Order, and it's by Rhodes. And I'll put the link down below as well for that. It's very palatable and easy to read, and it goes in chronological order. And it's biblically based from a Christian perspective, from a uh, uh, Bible literalist point of view. Okay, so, um, sorry, that was a, a tangent, but we're talking about the anti Antichrist. And the reason why I want to call him uh, Nikolai is because, one, that's the name that he has in the Left Behind series. But anytime that we talk about the Antichrist from the Christian perspective or the believer's point of view, I'm going to call him either the Beast or the Antichrist. But anytime we look at him from the perspective of the world, I'm going to call him Nikolai because the world is absolutely going to love this person. He is going to be a world leader that very well might be on the scene right now, but we don't know it yet, that what is going to happen? Let me give you some, some info on the Antichrist. Um, 
he is likely going to be um, from Europe. He's, there's strong arguments that he will not be Jewish and he will not be um, Muslim. And the reason being is because one of the things that he's going to do that Daniel just said is, is that he is going to bring in a peace treaty in Jerusalem. Um, so he is loved by everybody. Both the Jews as well as the Muslims love him. The whole world will unite behind this guy. He's going to be eloquent speaker. He is going to uh, have pizzazz and is not going to be this evil dude. So getting to our graphic here, let's add the Antichrist. There's our Antichrist. I added the name Nick on there on his uh, suit. Uh, he's a sly, sly one, uh, without a doubt. Um, so I want to actually flip to Revelation 13.3. So why don't you guys flip over to Revelation um, 13. And we're going to pick it up on verse 3. Revelation 13. <clears throat> verse 3. <clears throat> actually, I'm going to pick it up in the midst of verse 3. The whole world... What did it have to do with these? Yeah, the whole world was filled with wonder and followed Nikolai. People worshipped Nikolai because he had given authority to the beast. The beast is, uh, excuse me, authority to the beast. Oh, excuse me, they worshipped the dragon. Okay, I'm starting over here. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Okay, the beast is the Antichrist, Nikolai. People worshipped the dragon. The dragon is Satan. People worshipped the devil because he had given authority to Nikolai. And they also worshipped Nikolai and asked, Who is like Nikolai? Who can wage war against Nikolai? He is amazing. Nikolai was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months, three and a half years. We're going to talk about that. That's getting in talking about the abomination of desolation. But the Antichrist is uh, um, the man of lawlessness. That's in uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, which we'll actually talk about that next week because that also deals with uh, um, the rapture. So um, getting back to Daniel here, the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with many for seven years. So now, going back to our graphic, we now have a definition of the end of the church age and the beginning of the final seven years, which that gets that clock ticking again. Tick, 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 tick. We now have seven years. What is the one thing that will be an indicator of the start of those final seven years? It is going to be when there is a peace treaty that is signed and allows for peace in Jerusalem, in particular on the Temple Mount, there will be peace between Muslims and Jews, between Israel and Iran. There is going to be peace. Now, one of the things that's going to be brought about in this three and a half years, the first half of the tribulation, is the temple, the Jewish temple, will be rebuilt. There is a group, an organization called the Temple Institute, and you can look it up. The link is going to be down below. The Temple Institute exists to this day. It is an organization all about the third temple. 
first temple was built by Solomon, amazing, huge, glorious. The second temple was built by King Herod, also impressive, not as impressive as Solomon's. The third temple, here's an amazing thing, okay? It took so long to build the first two temples, years and years and years and years and years. The third temple, it's gonna be built in three and a half years. Why, how can I make that claim? Because of what we're gonna see in Daniel here in a moment. First of all, the temple cannot be built before there's peace in Jerusalem because right now the Temple Mount is controlled by the Muslims, okay? But if you look at an aerial view of the Temple Mount, there is a spot on the Temple Mount that you could fit literally King Herod's temple. If you were to take King Herod's temple and get away the outer courts and just take the temple itself, you could fit it on the Temple Mount. And the Temple Institute is one of the organizations that has sought to gather all of the elements that are needed. So as soon as peace does happen, they can, within three and a half years, build the temple. How do I know this is gonna happen? Well, let's keep reading. <clears throat> verse 27, I'm in Daniel 9, verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. The abomination of desolation. Okay, that is our next graphic. We have our abomination of desolation. And the graphic that I portray here um, it, it is relatively accurate to what it's going to be. So the abomination of de uh, uh, desolation. Um, we, there are a good number of passages for you note takers in which you can look up to find out all about the abomination of desolation. Here in 927, Daniel also uh, speaks of it two more times in 1131 and 1211. Matthew 2415, uh, we're going to see it here in a second when we go back to, to Matthew to wrap up the section for today. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 and then Revelation 13.4 through 15. Some skeptics will make the argument that, well, the abomination of uh, desolation already happened. It already happened, and it did happen. It did happen. The abomination of desolation happened in its first occurrence in 167 BC. So what is the abomination of desolation? Just to explain. So the Bible, idol worship. Idol worship, idols, the worshiping of idols, putting something in place of God that you worship is considered idol worship. Anytime it's, it's in the Bible, uh, it is called over and over in the Bible, it's called an abomination to God. So the abomination that causes desolation is specifically in the place of worship, setting up something else to be worshiped. Okay, so the first time that this happened was in 167 BC by uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, Epimanes. No, not Epimanes, <laughs> that's the next thing. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. So the Epiphanes part of it, and the reason why I laugh, is, is that that was a title that Antiochus IV gave to himself. He changed it from Antiochus IV to Antiochus Epiphanes. And what that means is illustrious one or God manifest. Literally, the idea is, worship me, I am God. So what did he do in 167 BC? Well, he brought a pig into the holy place, 
slaughtered it, sacrificed it, covered the blood everywhere from the pig, which as you know, pigs in Jewish tradition are unclean animals. The blood is unclean. He desecrated the temple by doing this. And then he set up an altar to Zeus to be worshiped there in the Jewish temple. This was the abomination of desolation that Daniel did prophesy about. And previous to Jesus mentioning it in Matthew 24, the Jews would have thought that Daniel's prophecy came to pass. But one of the things that's really cool about prophecy and eschatology being end times is that the study of end times is, is that prophecies do have at times dual fulfillment and in some situations, triple fulfillment. So the second fulfillment, Jesus is saying this prophecy that Daniel foretold of is going to happen again. Now, the thing is, is that Daniel's foretelling of it because of how specific he was, it didn't add up. The number of years didn't add up to this first uh, abomination of desolation because it happens in the middle of the tribulation. So that argument, yes, the abomination of desolation did happen in 167. Spoiler alert and a little side note here. Antiochus Epimanes was the title that the Jews gave to him, which uh, Epimanes sounds very similar to uh, Epiphanes. And Epimanes means mad one. The Jews gave him the title mad one. This dude was nuts. He wanted to eradicate the Jews completely. He wanted to kill all of them. But, little spoiler alert, there was a revolt among the Jews led by the Maccabeans. This is the Maccabean revolt. And what will happen if you study this is you'll come into and discover a miracle that happened in the temple involving some candles not running out of oil. And this is a celebration that is still celebrated by Jews to this day. It is called the Celebration of Lights, also known as Hanukkah. Side little note, which is pretty cool. Um, so the abomination of desolation. In the future, what's gonna happen is the Antichrist is gonna be loved by everybody. He sets up this peace treaty. Everything is great and wonderful. He still isn't the world leader that everyone is forced to follow yet, but he is this world leader that everybody loves and he successfully brings peace to the Middle East. Every president for the past like 40, 50 years, 40 years at least, has promised that that would be one of the things that they would do is bring peace into the Middle East uh, to no avail. But this individual will. So the person, when you find somebody who, if you see a signing of a peace treaty, that literally brings Iran and Israel together, that's a big, 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 big eschatological, eschatological event that is happening. But the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist, the false prophet is the second beast that Revelation talks about. This is gonna be an equivalent to John the Baptist was to Jesus. Uh, the, the, the false prophet is going to be uh, the hype guy for the Antichrist. And he is gonna be the one, the false prophet is gonna be the one that literally sets up an image. And I don't know exactly what this is gonna be. For our graphic here, I did a picture of the Antichrist that is set up to be worshiped. The Antichrist is going to say at the abomination of desolation in the middle of the tribulation, he is going to say, no longer do you worship God, Jews. No longer do you worship God, Christians. Muslims, no longer do you worship Allah. Everybody across the globe, you worship me. And he sets up an image there 
to be worshiped in the temple. And if you don't worship it, one of the elements that's talked about in Revelation is that somehow the false prophet has set it up that if you go and you don't, in its present, you don't worship it, you'll die. I don't know how that's going to work. I don't know if they'll literally have a guy with a gun. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know these things, but, but that is what will happen in the middle. Now, there's two things that are going to result from the abomination of desolation. There's two very, very key things that are going to happen. The Antichrist from this point on has three and a half years where he will rule the world. He will be the world leader. He will lead uh, the one world government. He will also lead the one world currency, which we're going to talk about next week when we talk about the mark of the beast. And he will lead the one world religion as well. And the Bible talks about for three and a half years. We were just on that passage in Revelation um, that for three and a half years, he will be given authority to do so. The second thing that's going to happen is the Jews are going to wake up and realize that they backed the wrong horse. They are going to have an awakening and a realization that Jesus was the actual Messiah and that they need to run for their lives. And we're going to see that in Matthew. In fact, let's flip, over, let's flip back to Matthew now. Um, Matthew 24, verse 15. This is all to the Jews. And this connects perfectly back to what we were just reading. So Jesus is talking to the Jews. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, that's what we just talk about, spoke about, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, which we just read, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one in the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. He is talking specifically to the Jews and he's saying straight up, when you see the abomination of desolation, run, run for your lives. And the Jews will go into hiding for the final three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, um, let's continue on verse 21. For then there will be great distress, which means tribulation. There'll be great tribulation, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. This is one of the passages why those who argue that this already took place, that Matthew 24 already took place in AD 70, Jesus is saying that this was worse than the flood in Noah's day, which we're going to hit on that next week. Um, no, billions of people died in the flood. This is talking about, um, uh, this is going to be worse than that. That the great tribulation, which is the, the second half of the tribulation, that seven-year period, the second three and a half years is what's called the great tribulation. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, now I want to pause just real quick right there. The elect is mentioned throughout the Bible, and at times it's talking about the believers. At times it's talking about Jesus but for the majority, especially in the Old Testament, based on the number of occurrences, when the elect is spoken of, it's talking about God's elect, the Jews, which we spoke about earlier. For the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. 
At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders and deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So this is telling us that in that three and a half years, the final three and a half years, there will be people even more so that will come up and say that they are the Messiah. Don't believe it. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will become the coming of the Son of Man. What Jesus is saying here, when I come back, you'll know it. You'll know it. It's the same way as lightning is visible from the east and the west. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. This is an interesting line, but uh, I'm going to explain why uh, Jesus cites this. So we're going to go to Revelation 19.17. I'm sorry, it's not 19.17. i got to correct my notes. It's actually 19.11. So flip to 19.11 for me. Revelation 19.11, just one page previous. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he rages, excuse me, with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. It's a nice reference to John 1.1, 1, 1, if you recall that. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then later on, uh, it, it, just a little bit further ahead in, in verse 114, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Jesus is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following Him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's us, believe it or not. We are mentioned there. We are, and, and you can find that in Revelation 17, 14 actually references the fact that we will be with Jesus at his second coming when he comes back. Um, when he comes back with 10,000s of thousands of, 10,000s of 10,000s of his saints, we will be with him. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, for <laughs> those individuals, um, parents have often said that their kids cannot get tattoos because the Bible talks about the fact that you shouldn't put any uh, graven image on yourself, that you shouldn't mark your skin. Well, if you want to be technical about that, that is in the Old Covenant. And Jesus here is tatted. Jesus has got ink going right down his thigh, nice and big, that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So if there's anybody out there that wants justification of why you're okay to get a tattoo, there you go. Jesus, when he comes back, is going to be tatted. You, you got to understand this. Jesus is coming back as a conquering king. 
The idea, the, the, the lion and the lamb. When Jesus first came, he came as a, a lamb and, and was meek, power under control. And he came and died for everybody. When he comes back the second time, he's coming as a conquering king, as a lion. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried in a loud voice to all the birds. An angel is calling all the birds in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty and of, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of the people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, it's the Antichrist, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who, who had performed the signs and on its behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast. We'll get to that next week. So now let's go back and continue on. So that, the reason why I paused there, we're back at Matthew 24, 28. Wherever there is a carcass, there are vultures will gather. An angel is going to call birds to come to the battle of Armageddon because the death is going to be so abundant. There will literally be rivers of blood coming out of the battle of Armageddon. Fun stuff, huh? It gets better. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Just a side note, just real quick there. The people of the earth. We're going to talk about the rapture next week, but there's a reason why the people of the earth will mourn. The reason why they will mourn is because Jesus is coming back and he's not coming as the, the nice little soft little fuzzy lamb. He's coming as the conquering king, as the lion. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect, that's the Jews, from the four winds and from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. We spoke about this earlier that I was going to come back to the fig tree. And this is my final point as we wrap up. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things happen, you know that it is near right at the door. Here's an interesting line. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Bible skeptics will say, see, there's fallacy in the Bible. Jesus said that all this is going to happen, that this generation will certainly not die before these things happen. See, the Bible is false. Well, <laughs> all you got to do is read the previous two sentences, guy. Seriously. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. What's the fig tree? The fig tree represents Israel. And we know that from Hosea. Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 is where we get specifically. In fact, um, let me see. Yeah, I have it down here. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. The fig tree is Israel. Okay, so Jesus is saying, now learn this lesson from Israel. As soon as you see the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. On the doorstep, 
So here is where we get this saying or this statement of the blossoming of Israel. And this question of, has Israel blossomed? Because Jesus promises and says that the generation that sees the blossoming of the fig tree will not die before these things happen. Okay? So here's a question. These things haven't happened yet, obviously. Has the fig tree blossomed? So if the fig tree is Israel, has Israel blossomed? Well, some people would argue that in uh, May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation again. The next day, pretty much every neighboring nation, the entire Arab uh, world declared war on Israel. So I would argue that that wasn't the blossoming. I would argue that, that 1948 was the, the little sapling came out of the ground, but I wouldn't say that it's the blossoming. There is peace in Jerusalem that has never existed. What happened in 2020 and why did so many Christians get so excited? What's the Abraham Accords? Okay, let's talk about this. The Abraham uh, Accords saw four members of the Arab League of Nations join and legitimize Israel and create peace treaties with Israel. This is unheard of, and this just happened. Bahrain, UAE, United Arab Emirates, uh, Sudan, and Morocco. They join with Egypt and Jordan. These countries have now set peace treaties with Israel. Israel is prospering like crazy. Mark Twain actually wrote about going and traveling to the Middle East and going to Israel. And in his day, he described it as a dry, desolate, desert land. That he doesn't understand why anybody would exist there. This was in the late 1800s that he wrote this. Israel is now fruitful. And, and, and in fact, on that note, literally fruitful. Much of the, the fruit that Europe receives, they receive from Israel. One of the reasons why, and I don't know why I'm going down this tangent, is that they've figured out a way, desalinization. They have actually um, perfected this system of pulling water from the ocean and watering, getting the salt out of it and using it to water all of their crops. And now as a result of this technology, they are a major, major export of fruit and of produce throughout the entire Middle East. From a technological standpoint, from a military standpoint, Israel is one of the most prominent world powers across the globe. It's the size of New Jersey. Do you get that? In the Arab League, the Arab nations, if you were to take an entire football field, and that's the Arab world, Israel, that nation would be the equivalent of one yard by one yard in the entire Arab world, and yet it is a world power, world leader, there is no question, we are there. We are, summer is here. We are seeing right now the blossoming of Israel, the fig tree. Jesus is talking about this. These things are about to happen. This is the reason why so many Christians are excited. They're so excited. Ezekiel 38, 14 talks about the fact that Israel, before they're invaded, before Armageddon, before all these battles take place, is going to be at peace. And Israel has never been in the amount of peace that they have right now. 
So that wraps it up for this week. I know we went over it, but I'm only halfway done. Can you believe that? Next week, we're going to be talking about, uh, actually, let's go back to our graphic. Let's go back to our graphic and see where we're at right now. So, uh, we have the 69 weeks of Daniel. We've got the, uh, the cross, which is the start of the church age. And then we've got our beautiful image um, that portrays the church age. Isn't that great? We've got our Antichrist that comes into power. We've got the peace treaty that's signed. We've got the new temple that's been built. We've got the abomination of desolation. And next week, we are going to look at uh, several things. The two big ones that I'm excited to talk about that get me very, very excited is the rapture that we have to look forward to and the mark of the beast. Bum, bum, bum. I also will touch on briefly um, the millennial kingdom and the new Jerusalem, but most of my talk is going to be um, geared on finishing up Matthew 24. So I hope this stuff, it's, it's interesting stuff. And one of the things that we're going to see uh, next week is that this, all this conversation, everything that I'm talking about, it's scary stuff, but to the believer, it's an exciting time. And it actually brings joy, which is nuts. To the person who isn't a believer, it's like, what, what are you talking about? You are a doom and gloom dude today, Dave. And that's true because that's what Jesus says. Jesus says things are going to get worse. But one of the reasons why so many Christians are so on fire right now is we've been woken up to the fact that we are living in the end days. There is nothing on the prophetic timeline that is in between now and the rapture of the church, which I'm gonna talk about that next week, and I know I've said that multiple times, but there is an eminence that right now we as believers need to live every single day as if we could go to meet Jesus today. Jesus could rapture us right now. There's nothing in the way that would prevent that. So I get so excited and I get so energized by all the stuff that I'm talking about because I see in COVID and I see in the tensions with the police and I see in Black Lives Matter and I see in all of the different things that are happening, I see specifically the fulfillment of what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. And it gets me riled up and excited. So that's it for this week. I pray that you guys have a phenomenal week. Oh. Let's actually, on that note, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word, the miraculousness of it in, in the prophecies between Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel and Matthew and all these things that you told us are gonna come to pass. It's exciting stuff. I pray, Lord, that that person who's listening right now who doesn't have that personal relationship with you would just ask themselves, why don't I? Because that's, that's an honest question I would ask, knowing all these things that are going to happen. Why not? Why not start that relationship with you? Put a conviction in their heart through the Holy Spirit. Speak to them, Lord. Draw them nearer to you, closer to you. I love you, Lord. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If that is you, that person I just described, there are some people who... Uh, are wait-and-see type people, where they want to see these things happen. And the thing that I would caution there is similar to a frog in boiling water. And that analogy is that if you put a frog in a pot, lukewarm water, tap water, and you turn the heat on, 
The frog is going to stay in the water until it boils to death. Versus if you toss a frog in boiled water, it's going to instantly jump out. If you were to back up 50 years ago, and I was to describe all the things right now, it would scare the snot out of you. And it would be like, oh my gosh, yes, we are right on the precipice. So if you haven't started that relationship with God, I really got to ask that question of why, why not? Read Romans chapter 10, verses nine and 10. That Romans nine, nine and 10, or Romans 10, nine and 10. Read all of that, read all of chapter nine and 10. It spells out specifically how you're saved. And how you are saved is by professing with your mouth and believing in your heart that Jesus did die for your sins. Confess that and you're saved and you'll be able to take place in the rapture, which I'll talk about next week. I got to get out of here. Otherwise, uh, I'm going to just keep rambling and we'll never be able to get to next week. So have a phenomenal week. I love you guys. And I am very pumped and excited and looking forward to next week's talk. And I hope you are too. See you guys next week. Bye.